James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, these are the words of God. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, last week, we began this new series in the book of James, and James just happens to be one of my favorite uh, books in the scripture. Uh, As we launched in, though, we encountered one, um, I guess, something that is uh, very challenging from the start, which is the express teaching of the Bible, of James, that Christians were to count the various trials they face as joy, or all joy, to be more precise. Now, an email that I received this week referred to the message as refreshing, sobering, and joyful. That's the kind of email you want right there. Refreshing, sobering, and joyful, right? But if you missed the definition that I gave for joy, you probably didn't quite see the message that way. You probably saw it quite different. As a matter of fact, your description might have been something like insensitive, impossible, and disagreeable. Those are generally terms that describe me anyway, but I think that that would have probably fit. So in an effort to win people over, right, win friends and influence people, uh, I want to restate the definition of joy one more time, and then I want to help you understand how it plays in to everything right? So joy is defined as an extended state of well-being. Can you say that with me? An extended state of well-being. Okay. Joy is not feelings of happiness. Joy is not feelings of pleasure. Joy is having a peace that, as we say, passes all understanding. And based on some of the trials that we face in life, we may be given little to no understanding. But again, joy is not being happy, and joy is surely not pretending to be happy in the midst of confusing times. Now, I, I have walked through some of the craziest things with the people of this church, right? I've walked through little things, and I don't mean this, by, I don't mean this as a as a shot, but I've walked through little things like pets dying, right? I've walked through uh, slightly larger things where it comes to to do with with, uh, job loss or maybe hard times financially. I've walked through challenges with uh, children, 
a lot. <laughs> I don't know what that says about our church. No, I'm just, anyway, but I've worked through challenges with children. Um, I've sat with people that are in this room that have lost children. Uh, and it's really hard, right? Very challenging stuff. There's a lot of things that are encompassed inside of the trials that we face, okay? And I don't want you to feel, anybody in this room to feel, that, um, that I have lost sight of that or that I don't think of that, okay? There are some very trying things that we've gone through. Uh, I would never instruct you to try to be happy through all that. But I would still instruct you, according to the Word of God, to, um, to have an extended state of well-being, a knowledge that you are not alone, that there is a greater promise ahead. If you recall, I referenced King Jesus as our perfect example of this, right? On the Mount of Olives, what did Jesus do? It says in Scripture that he, he sweated uh, what were basically drops of blood or looked like drops of blood, and he did that in anguish while looking at the cross. That's hard, okay? He did that. And the writer of Hebrews goes on to say that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So hold on a second. Jesus had anguish with his trial and for the joy set before him endured the cross. Because the truth is, church, joy and anguish are strange bedfellows, but they are still bedfellows, right? There are things that we face when it comes to our trials. James offers the prophets and Job as his examples of joy and trial. And if you're familiar with any of those stories, you know that their trials included being rejected by their own people. And if it was Job, it was the loss of his own children. And here's where it gets even more staggering. Job's case was absolutely the will of God. This is a hard, hard piece for us to understand. Please hear me. If we don't adhere to the actual definition of joy, an extended state of well-being, if we wrongly believe it to mean some kind of happiness in the midst of hell, we are going to be let down. We're going to feel like we're never doing what God asks us to do. And if we ask that of other people, we're absolutely foolish. Um, if we don't understand the need for endurance, uh, the need to grow in our faith, we will reject this truth as well. Uh, we'll conclude that God asks absurd things of us that are, aren't reasonable. But think about it this way, church. Um, it's either that God expects us to face our trials with joy an extended state of happiness, knowing that he's in control. Or God is saying, face your trial and remain bitter and angry. I don't care. Well, that doesn't sound much like God, right? He doesn't want us to, to live that way. How long does it take for us to get through the bitterness and the anger? I don't know. That story is different for absolutely every person out there. But the commission and the call is still the same. Walk in faith and do so with joy. If we do understand what's being communicated, the truth is that no matter what trial we face, we rest in the fact that God is in control. We know that he's establishing endurance in us. We know that endurance is establishing something else, which is maturity, and that maturity is establishing the truth that we will lack nothing as we try to live out this life of faith. But many people are not equipped for the life of faith that God has called us to because we short-circuited the beginning. We don't want trial. We actually believe preachers tell us that there is no trial if you're a walking in Jesus. 
This is foolishness. The life lived under submission to Christ Jesus will be challenging, will be difficult, it will hurt. And I hate this, but it will hurt in some ways that you won't understand until Jesus returns. Doesn't change the instruction. That's hard. Doesn't change the instruction. So today, we're going to walk uh, through this a bit deeper, right? We're going to talk about another need that we have in facing trials, and that need is wisdom. Uh, Before we get there, though, I want to give a disclaimer and a disclaimer about disclaimers. Sounds like I'm a lawyer. Okay, so here we go. Here's the disclaimer. We've all faced our fair share of trials, amen? All of those trials are different, amen? Okay, different trials. That said, there are always trials and issues that require a bit more care in how they're handled. I received an email this week also that helped me in keeping my mind on those things, right? Always keeping my heart and my mind focused on the fact that there are deeper issues. There are certain trials that some people face that I know nothing of. Not that I don't know that they're dealing with it, but that I haven't lived it or I haven't walked it with them. So there are types of trials that require greater understanding, greater levels of sympathy, especially if you're helping people cope with tragedy. And no matter the reality of that, uh, it will never change, again, the explicit instruction of God's word. Count it as joy as you face trials. Deep breath, right? It may change the timing of how you share this with people, it may, shape, it may shape the tenor of the message, like how you deliver a message, whether it's harsh or blunt or soft and gentle, whatever it might be, uh, but it will never change the truth. So that's the disclaimer. There's still a truth that needs to be shared, and there are hard things that we face. A disclaimer about disclaimers. That, or disclaimers, is not the aim of the sermon, <laughs> Please, I need you to just sympathize with me for a second, okay? Uh, This is my trial every Sunday. No, I'm just teasing. Anyway, this is is my trial. My idea is that uh, the aim of the sermon, the aim of the address is not to uh, try to pinpoint every scenario possible. This is reserved for counseling. This is reserved for intimacy between believers. Otherwise, most sermons would be all disclaimers, That's all you'd ever do. You'd just sit there and go, hey, God said this, but hey, I don't mean that. I mean, for your situation, it might be slightly different. So, And then all of a sudden, people go, you didn't even tell me anything this day, right? The Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Thessalonians, he fawns over these people like they're the most amazing people ever. He actually fawns over them so much, you would think there's no sin in the church. (laughs) Well, that's stupid, (laughs) right? They had a Jerry Cluss too, right? So, right? Don't owe that. That was awesome. Anyway, so, right, so the reality is he fawns over them. But what is he doing? He's not saying in general that nobody is with sin or that everybody's perfect. He's simply addressing them in a general sense. Meanwhile, when Paul addresses, addresses the Galatians, uh, read it for yourself, the first chapter. You don't even have to get 10 verses in, right? He effectively calls every one of them deserters of the faith. How would you love that if you came into church on a Sunday morning and I greeted you and said, hi, Pierce Point, all of you guys have given up on Jesus. You'd go, you better back up, mister. 
Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Because that's absurd. That's not what we're talking about. What I am doing and what Paul is doing is offering something in general. And mind you, Paul gives no disclaimers when he does those things. What's my point? Simply that the sermon, the letter, the instruction, it's not intended to cover all bases. It's a general statement that calls the church to a higher way of living and that plays out in the individual's life per their discernment, right? Per their discernment. So if I came in and I said, men, you suck. I'm sorry, kids. If I said that, please look in the mirror. If you don't, then disregard my words. It's that easy, right? I'm not thinking of a particular, well, sometimes I'm thinking of a particular person, right? But my point is that I have to speak in general terms. And if that doesn't apply to you, if you were a Galatian, uh, one of the church in Galatia, and you didn't desert the faith, then you can disregard Paul's words. You can say, That's, he's not talking to me. I'm good. This is, this is discernment. This is what adults do, right? We have to do this. I've caught a lot of flack about this lately, Okay caught a lot of flack about this and so it becomes a real weird challenge for me in this right so James is telling us that we are to consider it joy when we face trials full stop no disclaimers right does he mean uh, that every issue is the same absolutely not does he assert that because an issue is more challenging than another the instruction doesn't apply there absolutely not right this is a general truth. Now, walking it out becomes very complicated, becomes very nuanced. And then, this is my sympathy call for you, preaching the message requires just the same. It requires a whole lot of walking it out through complicated measures and being nuanced in what I say, right? So, that's important. There are deep hurts associated with certain trials, uh, I remember walking through uh, the loss of a baby with a couple that's in this room now. And I remember handling it wrong. I remember handling it by, I don't know, by judging their faith, by struggling with their belief in a certain situation. I remember doing that. And I remember, nope, you missed it, bud. You had no idea how you were supposed to handle that. Sure, was I supposed to call them to joy in the midst of that trial? Yes, I was. But I didn't have to say, have joy in the midst of trial, and if you don't, ye of little faith, right? That's, that really isn't my call in that. So there are deep hurts associated, man, deep hurts associated with certain trials. And there are challenging views of God as to what he controls and what he allows in life. How many of you know that? How many of you know that God, um, God has to, as an omniscient, all-powerful being, he has to at least, bare minimum, allow all things that happen? He could stop them, yes? He does not stop all evil, does he? Therefore, he allows. That's a hard pill to swallow for some. But let's go even further. There are some things expressly in the scripture that God causes and you and I will struggle with these until we can talk to him right Joseph says in his story Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers what a fun idea right 
I wish I would have thought of that years ago. Anyway, so sold, sold, his brothers, sold his brothers into slavery. I'm teasing John right now. But sold his brothers into, or his brothers sold him into slavery. He missed out on 20 years of life with the father that he loved. And his father, who loved him more than all the rest, lost out on 20 years with him. And the Bible says, from Joseph to his brothers, what you intended for evil, hear these words, church. God intended, not allowed, intended for good. That's awful if I'm in my human mind. <laughs> but it goes on and says God had intended it for good so that he could preserve many people alive, right? There are allowances in God's control, and we struggle through those in our trials. But in all cases, the truth is the same, whether we accept it or not. That truth is to have joy in the midst of your trial. Hopefully, that truth can be spoken in love to those in the throes of tragedy. Hopefully, it can. I don't know that it always can. But this is where wisdom comes in, which is exactly where I want to go today. So... All of that just to lead into this message. So you're going to be here for a while. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, let's start with James chapter 1, verse 3. If you have that in your Bibles, turn to it. James chapter 1, verse 3. Here's what the Word of God says again. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The first issue that we have to address, church, is the testing of our faith. What is that specifically, though? Have you ever given that thought? What does it mean to have your faith tested? Well, in order to answer that question, we have to answer another question first. And that question is, what in the world is faith? The answer to that is found in Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. Uh, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, right? The assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So if we put all that together, the testing of our faith would be anything that is sent... Because God sends some, Joseph, situation. Anything that is sent or comes in life, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. All things, even the sins of other people, right? Uh, so the testing of our faith would be anything that is sent or comes in life that reveals our actual level of trust or assurance in King Jesus. How many of you took tests at the end of school, at the end of a class? You took a big test. Come on. Raise your hands. How many of you despised that? Yeah. Uh, guess what? That test wasn't evil either. <laughs> your poor study habits were evil, but that's a different matter altogether, right? We, we have test anxiety because what tests do is they require we prove we know something. Uh-oh. <laughs> right? If I'm required to prove I know something and I don't know a thing, all of a sudden I hate the test. The test is not the problem. I is, okay? I'm the problem inside of this, okay? And so the same thing happens with regard to tests of our faith. God is simply saying, how much do you trust me? You profess all this fancy stuff, but what do you walk? What do you believe? What do you live out in your life? Well, this includes countless things then. It's common to think that a trial of faith is always something hyper-spiritual, right? Like walking on water. How many of you want to do that? Let's go to East Fork and try it, okay? Right? Walking on water, uh, moving mountains. 
Moving mountains, how many? Yeah, you like that. But let me, let me give a spoiler to you, maybe a little bit of a buzzkill here. Um, no one in the course of human history has ever moved a mountain because Jesus didn't mean a mountain. There's something we have to give to the understanding of God's word when figurative language is being used, when God is explaining a thing. Because you would think if Jesus said, all you have to do is say to the mountain, go into the sea, someone at some point, an Enoch, would have been able to do it. That's not what he meant. Stop going to mountains. Well, first of all, if you ever throw a mountain into the sea, I'll kill you. I love mountains, right? I have no, throw it into my backyard, right? If you're going to do that, okay? So moving mountains or something like this, refusing to deny Jesus when your life is on the line. We all have this weird imagination in our heads. There's a firing line, and if I don't deny Jesus, they're going to shoot me. Okay, these are like the real big situations where we talk about testing our faith. But the truth is, our faith in Jesus is required in every aspect of our life. Amen? Which, guess what that means? That means you're being tested constantly, right? What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? Maybe I should not wear a hoodie next week or something, right? Not very preacher-like, but these are trials of our faith, right? Follow with me on Matthew chapter 6, verse 27 through 33. It's a perfect example. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? I keep trying, though, for some dumb reason. And why are you worried about clothing? Because I look like a hobo. <laughs> why are you worried about clothing? Observe, that wasn't a call for more shirts, Tina. I'm just, I'm just letting you know. I just... This is a joke, right? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory was clothed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little... Oh, so it's a test of faith. Interesting. Okay, so when I'm tested in that faith, what should I do? I should endure that test with joy, just the same as any other. Don't worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. And here, the word Gentile, in its context, simply means those without God in the world. Okay, And I can uh, spend all day proving that to you. If you want to talk to me afterwards. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And what happens? God will take care of the rest. All these things will be added to you. So again, the testing of our faith is anything that is sent or comes in life that reveals our actual level of trust or assurance in King Jesus. And guess what happens in my life? I fail at those tests daily. I fail at those tests daily. God says, trust me for this. I go, I can't trust you for that. God says, rest in me for this. And I go, I got to stay awake and keep it going. God says, I'll take care of your business. I'll take care of your plan. I'll take care of your kids. I'll take care of those things. And I say, no, 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 no. <laughs> Lord, you don't understand the complexities of life. And he laughs at me most of the time, right? The true challenge comes when the tests are not so simple, right? It's one thing to not have enough food for yourself. It's another thing altogether to not have enough food for your family. 
becomes very humbling at that point. It's one thing to trust God for your own life, but it's another thing to trust him for the life of those around you. This is seen with every mother or father who once drives a sports car and then has kids and all of a sudden buys a minivan. (laughs) Same thing with motorcycles. All of a sudden you care about everybody else and you're looking out for ways to protect them. You're, You're looking for that. God is saying, I can be trusted in all those things. The trials of our faith are many and they reach into absolutely every aspect of our life. So we're to consider all of this as joy. Is that easy to hear? Not always. Not always. We're to consider it all joy. James continues. Here's what he says. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And here's why you should face it with joy. What is endurance for? A great many things according to the scripture. But in this context, it's all about maturity. Which James says, equips us so that we lack nothing. Nothing in life. However, other passages show a very broad need for endurance. Let me take you to Matthew 24. While you're turning there, I'll just explain it. It speaks about tribulation among the saints. And the trial that is at hand is that of false teachers who are attempting to lead people astray with what they say and what they teach, right? Jesus said that those who endure to the end, so what would this be in its context? Those who just remain believing in Jesus and the gospel that he proclaimed, those who keep the faith will be saved. Why? Because they worked for it. That has nothing to do with this passage. It has nothing to do with works or earning your way to God. It has to do with not allowing trials in life, not allowing bad teaching, not allowing things that pull you astray to divert you or to drown out our creator's beautiful beautiful voice and that is found through his word so listen to what jesus said in matthew uh, chapter 24 then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name just a slight time out notice there's no disclaimers here jesus is allowing us to use common sense he says they'll kill you well if we're all dead what's it matter he doesn't mean everybody right he means that some will be killed some will be hated by the nations all of these things are just implied ideas people things people should understand at that time he goes on many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another many false prophets will arise and will mislead many because lawlessness is increased most people's love will grow cold but the one who endures to the end he will be saved the one who does what church endures so we need endurance because in this sense it's connected to our salvation so why would you not want a trial that brings about endurance if you need endurance to be saved and why would you not face that trial with joy if you know that what it produces will ensure that you walk humbly and boldly too before God not brashly but boldly before God that's a huge deal uh Jesus goes on, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. The endurance of our faith, church, is clearly tied to our salvation. But how? The whole point here is that our faith gets tested and we remain trusting in God who saves. In that, we are saved. Because guess what? The Bible doesn't change. We're saved by grace through faith. In Jesus. That's it. It's the same thing. Trusting in him. 
uh, if we change the meaning, if we don't have endurance, we're going to miss it. And so why should we be joyful? Because we need endurance. One parable that Jesus spoke in this regard is that of the sower in Matthew 13, 18 through 23. I'm going to take you through that and just give some brief commentary on it. Here's what he says, Matthew 13, 18 through 23. It's on the screen. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Please stop there and understand this. The devil is not stealing away the gospel from some people because God has just chosen them to go to hell. This is not what's said here. What is said here? Read the words on the page. Because they didn't understand, the devil seizes the opportunity. So, what prevents people from being path soil? Better teaching. Better teaching. If you can help people understand, it will change that first scenario. And God has told us that that's the case. So when we read the actual words, we don't panic and we don't say, well, what's represented here are four different types of soil and I really hope you're the good kind. That's not what happens. What's happening here is there are all kinds of trials that come and they absolutely rob us of the faith that we're supposed to have, okay? Or the faith that we can have in King Jesus. So let's go again. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, first key, the evil one comes in and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one whose seed was sown beside the road. The one who, on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet... He has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary, and the afflictions and persecutions arise because of the word, and immediately he falls away. Guess what he didn't have? Endurance. Guess why he didn't have endurance? Because he didn't face the trial with joy. He looked at it, it panicked him, he left. You can change that too. You can change that too. And here's how you do it. Listen to James. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds because it produces in you endurance and endurance will produce in you maturity and maturity will equip you that you will lack nothing in this life. So he goes on. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. You can change that too. You can serve one master and not two because you can't serve two anyway, right? You can serve God and not the other things. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and, oh, he's not like the path soil, which means it's possible. That's a beautiful thing, right? Understands it, who indeed bears fruit. Why does he bear fruit? Number one, he's endured long enough to bear fruit. You know that it takes a while to actually produce fruit, right? He's bared long enough. He's endured long enough. And number two, he's not choked out by deceitful riches. Instead, he's bearing the right fruit. So the scripture goes on and says, he indeed bears fruit, bringing forth some a hundredfold, some 60, and some 30. This is beautiful. God is not concerned on the fold of your fruit. He's concerned that you bear fruit. You got a hundredfold? Great. You're amazing. 
I want to be more like you someday. If you're 30-fold, God is loving you and caring for you. So endurance matters because it's the MO of the Christian. The testing of our faith enables us to endure more testing and still remain steadfast. This is why James went on to say in verse 4, And let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's what I want to be. I want to be that guy. Okay? So we've talked about joy in the midst of trial. We've talked about the testing of faith finding its way into every aspect of life. And now having endurance for the sake of maturity so that we lack nothing. But what happens? What happens when you embrace these truths and still feel ill-equipped to walk them out? Honest question here. I get it, Nathan. I get what you're saying. I still feel like I can't do that with joy. How many of you would say, I still feel like I can't do that with joy? How many of you would say, I know somebody, there's no way in the world they can do that with joy? Okay, okay, there's grace, and here's the grace. We call out for God to give us wisdom. Notice what James 1.5 says, but, right? I want you to face trials with joy. I want you to do so because it produces endurance. I want you to do so in endurance because it produces maturity. I want your maturity to be there so you'll lack nothing. But, but if you can't, but if you're struggling, but if you're worried about this kind of thing, here's what I want you to do. But if any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Because the wisdom of God will absolutely navigate you through a trial. It will. You can trust what he says. This is not a subject change for James. He's not pulling a squirrel, right? He didn't have ADD. Instead, he is acknowledging that his audience needs wisdom within the context of trials. Can I get an amen on that one? (laughs) Right? We need wisdom in the midst of our trials. Wisdom for making mature decisions when we don't have the maturity we're supposed to have yet. When our faith is absolutely tried. So all we have to do to confirm this is follow the, what, what I call the just keep reading principle. It's like Dory from, uh, from whatever that movie was, right? Finding Nemo. Just keep swimming. This is just keep reading, right? After the instruction to a call for wisdom, James 1.12 connects it back to 1 through 4, which is the trial issue, and says, Blessed is the man who preserves under, perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So the crown of life is a huge piece inside of all of this. We need all of that. We're all about salvation with this having joy in the midst of trial. The whole point of this is persevering under whatever is thrown your way and the fact that you'll need wisdom for it. But if you do, pray, pray to God, he'll give it to you. And praise God, he'll do what, he, what you ask. Proverbs 2.6 says, The Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. What's our source, church, for wisdom? I don't think you're convinced. What's the source of our wisdom, church? The Lord. The Lord. Why do we run to everything but Him? I don't know. I don't know. Trials are hard. We need wisdom to get through each one of them. If we lack that wisdom, we ask. And God is a giver, and He's a giver of wisdom. He will pour it out without reproach if you'll trust Him. 
So when you feel your trials are too much to handle, instead of concluding that the instruction of James just doesn't have jurisdiction in your life, call out to God for wisdom in how to handle it and how to count it as joy. Because he'll show it to you. He'll show it to you. Uh, So the next thing we learn in this is that God gives without reproach. And I'm going to pull this to a close, I promise, here in a second. So what does that mean? What does it mean that God gives without reproach? Quite simply, it means that God, like any good father or mother, uh, when their child asks for help, he helps us. (laughs) Is that that revolutionary? (laughs) Right? You ask for help? And God actually helps you. The child is not met with ridicule for what they don't know. And they're also not met with a drudging up of the past because they've been a heathen before, right? I do this with my daughters all the time. They ask me the same questions. Four daughters in the house, all under the age of nine now, right? Or soon to be nine, tomorrow, right? Under the age of nine. And all they do is ask the same question over and over. You'd think they'd get it by now, right? What does that teach a dad? <laughs> Patience. <laughs> Patience. Because it's why, 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 why. And all of a sudden I realized exactly what I sounded like to my mom and dad all my life, right? And that was even last year. So you get the point, right? So, so they're always asking this, but I don't sit there and go, gosh, how come you don't know that, you idiot? Why would I do that to my kid? And guess what? God doesn't do that either. God wants what's best for us, and so he's a giver of every good and perfect gift. James is the one who told us that. James 1, 16 and 17. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God didn't change. He's not changing tomorrow, right? He said, you want a good gift? I'll give you the good gift. And I'm not going to withhold it tomorrow. If you ask for wisdom, you're going to receive it. If you seek for it, you're going to find it. If you knock on that door, it will be open to you. God is not fickle. Just ask him. Okay? Verses 6 through 8. It expands on this, and it's become a, quite a challenging idea for some. James 1, 6 through 8 says, But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You want to know how I heard that growing up? I heard that growing up a very different way. I never, I never heard the passage of Scripture that said that God is, or the idea in Scripture that God would correct us with gentleness and with love. So what I always heard that saying, or how I always heard that, was this. That man ought not to expect anything that he's asked for. He's a double-minded fool, unstable in all his ways. And that is precisely the wrong attitude to read that with. It's not what God is saying. We could make this extremely negative. We could hammer a drum of being double-minded. But the straightforward, gracious approach is this. Being double-minded is simply the fact that each and every day you're faced with a choice. You can live as you. You can live with you as the king of your life, or you can live with Jesus as king of your life. Faith means I trust Jesus. Every time in a trial, every time in a circumstance, I rob it back or take it back from God, what am I being? Double-minded. I think I have dual citizenship. I think I can do it my way and God's way on Sunday. That's double-minded, right? And guess what? I do it probably 15 times a week, right? There's times when I go, God, I'm going to trust you in this. Ah, take it back. Right? 
the way I read that before, the way I read that as a kid, God had already sent me to hell. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, you have to be careful. You're a double-minded man. And I can confirm that as we go forward, right? Uh, Jesus tells us that it, when we serve two masters, we will love the one and hate the other. So the idea here is we should love the Lord and hate even our own flesh. Hate even the, the very things that we are about because his way is the best way, church. So if you're going to ask God for wisdom, trust that he'll give it and that uh, he will give what is sufficient to you, right? He's not going to withhold. If you don't trust him, why would you ask in the first place? If I don't believe you're going to give me 20 bucks, Bill, I'm not going to ask you. This is why I haven't asked you, right? So <laughs> I'm messing with you, right? But, but faith in God says, if I trust him, I'm going to ask him. And if I don't ask him, it's because I don't trust him, right? If the master you trust is you, your reasoning or your experience, then you really aren't interested in God's way. Hard pill to swallow, right? It should be common sense, though. Uh, you will not receive from the Lord if you don't believe he's good, believe he's the one who gives. So what James goes into next is an important lesson on pride and humility. It's not some covert shot against rich people in favor of poor people. Hear me, all you social justice warriors out there. Uh, let me say this at the outset. God gives grace to the humble and he rejects the proud. God also shows no partiality. And guess what else? God also shows no partiality to the poor. You've been misinformed. Here's what Leviticus says. Leviticus 19.15 You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Right? Fairly is what is right. Exodus chapter 23 verses 2 and 3 You shall not follow the masses in doing evil which is exactly where our world is going. Nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in a dispute. Contrary to popular belief, God does not show partiality to the poor and neither should we. Absolutely not. However, we are to follow God's lead and promote justice and show mercy to the humble. How many of you have ever met a poor person that's terribly proud? I, I are one at times, <laughs> right? right? A poor person that is proud. There is no magic formula in poor. There's a magic formula in humility, in surrender, in trusting God. What that said, with that said, let's look at James and see what he said again in 9 through 11. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. That doesn't sound so high, right? Because, uh, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. That's actually his humbling, right? Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. Everybody's going to die. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. All that said was the rich man's going to die too in his pursuits. It didn't say the rich man's going to hell. Please don't read too much into the Bible. It says, it says though, that he will be humbled, and that's a beautiful thing, or he can resist it. You see what's contrasted in these verses? What's contrasted here is the rich, not the rich, versus the poor. What's that first line say? 
the humble versus the proud, okay? The humble and the rich. This is a a common use of language in the Bible. If you are humble in circumstances, you are actually in a high position, and you're to glory in it. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, James is repeating himself. Consider it joy when you face trials for your faith. It is to be held in a high position because you're humbling yourself. Do you get it? Do you get it? It's the same exact thing. He's actually repeating himself in a really flowery, cool way, right? Consider it joy. However, if you are proud, you should glory in your humiliation. Why? For the exact same reason as the humble person. The same reason as what James told us at the beginning. Because trial produces endurance, endurance produces maturity, and maturity gives you the ability to do anything and everything you need in a life of faith. All our wealth, all our pride, it's going to burn off one day. What will be left? Hopefully, a sound, humble, mature faith. Trusting in Jesus. That's hopefully what's left. James 1.12 Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So here's the conclusion of everything. All trials really are to be counted as joy. They are an extended state of well-being. They are, as verse 12 just said, a crown of life kind of well-being. And they are an eternal kind of well-being. In order to do this, we're going to need wisdom. Who gives wisdom, church? Who? You're still slacking. Who? And who does he give it to? Anybody who'll ask. It's amazing. Ask, believe, trust in him. He'll give it to you. Isn't that an amazing, amazing truth? So we're going to face a lot of trials in our life, and we're going to face various trials depending on, um, depending on the circumstance, depending on a lot of things. All of them, though, are to be faced with joy. And that joy is an extended state of well-being because in the end, God is in control. Amen.